Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. Communicating our work to non-scientists is a challenge for all scientists. How do you put your work into terms that they can understand, and what do you need to do to reach them where they are receptive to your message? And how do you do all that while managing this crazy world of pandemics and social stress? Today's guest, Kevin Cox, is passionate about bridging the communications gap between the science community and his online and in-person spaces. We talked to him about his research and how he uses multiple platforms to spread scientific knowledge and understanding. One note before we begin, we recorded these episodes in October, and then life intervened. So any references to recent or upcoming events may not match our current situation. With that, on to the episode. All right, well, today's guest is Kevin Cox. Kevin is a St. Louis native, but did his PhD at Texas A&M University before returning to St. Louis to do a postdoc with Blake Myers here at the Danforth Center. Kevin has won numerous awards and grants and was recently awarded an HHMI Hannah Gray Fellowship. Welcome to the Taproot, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Ivan and Liz. We are happy to have you. So today's paper is entitled Tal effector-driven induction of a sweet gene confers susceptibility to bacterial blight of cotton uh, by Cox et al. in Nature Communications. So Kevin, can you give us a very brief uh, summary of the results in this paper? Yeah, so basically this paper involved uh, working on this bacterial disease on cotton called bacterial blight of cotton, and it's caused by a xanthomonas species. And before then, we didn't, scientists didn't really know the molecular mechanisms of this disease. They just had some hypothesis of what might have caused it based on previous studies with rice and, and uh, cassava and peppers, but there weren't really a direct evidence. So what we were able to show was the molecular mechanisms of this disease, which showed that this bacterium uses this effector protein called a tau effector to uh, activate this plant sugar transporter in cotton, which is called a sweet gene. And by activating the sweet gene in cotton, uh, it was able to promote this water soaking symptom uh, in this plant, in the plant, and allow the bacteria to multiply and possibly use that sugar as a carbon so- source to uh, continue to spread and affect the rest of the plant. Yeah, so one of the things that people who are not familiar with plant pathogen interactions don't know is how much the bacteria is able to manipulate the plant and like basically turn the plant into make a little house for it and give it a bunch of food. So that's kind of what these tal effectors are doing, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. I like to call them eukaryotic transcription factors and bacteria because that's what they are. Uh, They're basically going into the plant and then just hijacking their gene regulation in order to use it for their advantage. Because at the end of the day, the bacteria has to survive and it does what it can. Right. And so what's the, what's the role that these sweet genes play? Like, why does the bacteria want to turn the sweet gene on? 
Yeah, so these sweet genes, they're sugar transporter genes. And normally in the plant, the plants, they use these sugar transporter genes for nutrition for themselves or for sugar transport throughout the plant or for even pollen, pollen development. So the bacteria will want to use that sugar because bacteria, they like sugar and they use sugars to grow. And the bacteria is thinking, well, if I can take this sugar transporter gene and activate it at a very high level to where I can start feeding off that sugar in order to survive and multiply even more, that'll benefit the bacteria a lot. Right. So Kevin, in some respects, it's a very simple paper because you have, you know, these tau effectors, they're turning on a gene and you were able to show that turn on the gene, it, it allows infection, you, you block that, it doesn't infect. But I noticed there's a lot of techniques actually used in the paper that were fairly new. This is 2017 paper, so you were probably doing this in 2015, 2016, and, or before, and you're doing full genome sequencing, you're designing tal effectors to, for altered sequences and all these kinds of things. And so it's, it's one of these works that is like enabled by technology just advancing so quickly in our field. Was that how you started the project? I think the biggest thing to know is some of the technologies, they really start to improve more when I was a, gra when I was a graduate student working on this project. So I know pet biosequencing, that was kind of discovered back in the early 2010s. But in the next few years, maybe 2013, 2014, that started to get really re-refined and started to really uh, become a powerful sequencing technology. And Adam's group, uh, my collaborator, he was using pet bio a lot to sequence a wide variety of Xanthomonas uh, species. So at the time, we were thinking, well, we can do the same thing for cotton, these cotton pathogens too. So that was something that kind of evolved a little bit later in the paper. Cool. So Kevin, this is, a, I really like this, this story. And I think one of the things that always strikes me about um, these sorts of questions is when you're doing these sort of molecular studies in agricultural crops, you have this wealth of resources to deal with because the, um, the agronomists and the, the breeders all know, they know the strains that are problems in their fields. They know the, the resistant cultivars and you can sort of say, oh, I, I, I have this perfectly set up experiment, you know, susceptible resistant, pathogenic, non-pathogenic, and you can just kind of, um, and, uh, you know, go in there and really dig in and use the molecular biology to tell the whole story and figure out what's going on. And so that's, that was something that's really powerful. Uh, and part of that's probably because you were at A&M and, you know, so you had connections mm -hmm. and people who knew these things. Was that one of the things that sort of was attractive to you about going to work in at Texas? Well, I mean, there were kind of two big reasons. So one reason was I was looking for plant pathology schools or good agriculture schools to go to. And Texas A&M, they were pretty much at the top of the list in that field. Uh, they had a real good ad school. They had a solid uh, plant pathology department. And they also had a professor who, that I wanted to work with, which eventually, which was Lebo. So she ended up becoming my mentor. Like I really loved the work that she was doing and I could, and I could easily see myself working with her for five or six years or whatever. So that was mm -hmm. the big reason. <laughs> uh, the second one is 
mainly because A&M gave me the best offer. At the time, I was a undergrad student. I had I already had my daughter at the time, so I wasn't really making that much money. Uh, I had a job, but it was like minimum wage type of job. And so I applied for three graduate schools. One ended up losing my applications materials. Uh, the other one, they admitted me, but it was on probationary. And A&M, they gave me this offer that I couldn't turn down. Uh, it was like a university fellowship packaged into it. That's no brainer. So let me let me step back. So what you you know? So you were born and raised in St. Louis City. You went to you went to college, University of Missouri St. Louis, just uh, just down the road from here. And what made you want to go into ag? I mean, UMSL is not an ag school. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy story. So I guess to give you my background, so. When I was growing up, I always wanted to become a doctor because uh, I felt that was the best way to help people. And specifically, I wanted to become a pediatrician because I liked working with kids at the time. So I went to UMSL with the intention of being a pre-med student. But halfway through my sophomore year, I took a microbiology class and I fell in love with the subject completely. I was just fascinated what these microbes they, they can do, how they can harm people. Uh, how can they be- how they can benefit us? It just cut- completely blew my mind. And so at that point, I had decided that I didn't want to do anything else except research microbes. I didn't know what exactly yet, but I just knew it has to evolve microbes. And a year later, uh, I actually had got a part-time job at the Danforth Center as an undergrad lab tech. And I had worked with Todd Mockler for about a year and a half, so like 2012 to 2013. And that was my very first exposure to plants. To be honest, before the, before the Danforth Center, I didn't really too much care about plants. I thought they were nice, but they just, nobody really motivated me. Nobody really inspired me that show, oh, these plants are actually cool. Um, but when I got to the Danforth Center, I just fell in, I was just in awe like the number of things plants can do for us as like, and that just blew my mind. And then if you think about it, there's come a point, and Todd kind of told me this when he was mentoring me. He said, you know, there will come a point that we might not get sick as much, but everybody's still got to eat. And plants, they provide that uh, power for us. And so I just took my passion with microbes and my new developed passion with plants, being at the Danforth Center, and just pursue plant pathology. That's awesome. That is such a great story. I love the power of both a class and of like hands-on research to that like just sort of came together to give you the bacteria plus the plants. And now you get to study both of them. That's really cool. It sounds like that's, that those are some experiences and some mentoring experiences that you want to, you want to give back, mm-hmm. right? Give back, yeah. Like, yeah. And so you're back home in your hometown. Like, and so what are you doing now to sort of, uh, give young people the information and sort of inspiration of plants that you feel like you didn't get until later on? One thing that I'm trying to do is to spread that love of science and science or plants or both all together that I had got to other students or other kids that are much younger than I am. I wasn't really inspired by plants and I didn't know you could become a scientist when you got older. And so if I can take that ability and pass that on to kids and let them know, hey, this is something that you can do, and it's actually really fun, and you'll enjoy it, I believe that can help them. So right now, what, what I like to do is go to other schools and give like science lessons or 
talk to other students about career goals. I like to do a lot of science communications where it's that through my social media, with through Twitter or Facebook or with my YouTube channel every once in a while. It's just anything that I can do to uh, communicate science to the public and communicate my passions to the public. Going into schools is something that lots of plant scientists do. You know, you have all these other channels. How do you, which ones do you feel like are making the most impact? I don't really know, to be honest. I just do try to do a variety of channels and hope something sticks mm-hmm. with somebody. I would say with the YouTube, uh, it's a advantage for me because I don't have to physically go out and meet people, especially. What, what, yeah, what, what could possibly stop you from going out to meet people right now, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about this YouTube channel and, and then how do you um, turn that into a way to promote science? Or is that all you do on it? Or is, is there other content on there? Yeah, so my YouTube channel, it started out as like a hobby of mine. So I may upload travel vlogs or I may play gaming videos of. So just me of playing a variety of games that I may enjoy playing. I want to share my joy to the rest of the public or to the rest of the world. My daughter watches a lot of those. Yeah, mine, mine <laughs> yeah, too. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it started with that. And then as I got more in, into my science career, I, well, I just kind of realized the gap between science and the general public. Right. And that there was this big gap between communicating that science to the public. And so especially when COVID came around, there was a lot of misinformation going around. There's, there's still a lot of misinformation going around. And so yes. I started these videos to kind of help close that gap a b- little bit to give people a kind of s- reliable source to say like, hey, this is actually what's happening. This is from a scientist that you know, that you grew up with, it, that you grew up with, that you can trust. This is what's actually happening right now. And I hope that it kind of closes that gap. And those videos, they kind of have been my more well-received videos. I haven't been making them that much lately because I've been busy with other stuff. Give us an example of one that you, of like a a more recent, maybe even pandemic-related video that you've put out there. So my more recent one was uh, when the state of Missouri were finally mandating the masks in some of the public places. Right. Little late, little late, but regardless. (laughs) It's too bad this is a podcast and people can't see your facial expression. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I had put out a video explaining uh, why masks need to be mandated, but it's just, it's just topics like that, that I try to touch is topics that may be uh, understand that well or not what we'll see. So let me just make sure I understand. So you have in part, it's the same channel. You're Mm -hmm. like playing a video game. So every now, every now and then you, you pop in and you just like, oh, by the way, PSA, masks are to protect other people from your breath. And do you, do you get like feedback where people are like, yeah, that's not what I'm here for. I, I say they're like two different channels, but as I think about it, like social media that I follow, like nobody's staying in their own lane this year. What are your thoughts about mixing uh, messages like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so that was a conflict that I had was whether I wanted to keep it all on one channel or try to s- separate it into two separate channels. But if I keep it all on one channel, it kind of helps me bring an audience in. And while I had that audience in, they can listen to any science news that I may relate to them. 
And they're like, oh, okay, well, this guy, he's a normal guy. He's not one of those, he's not a weirdo that's, um, or anything. Right. If they can, if I can bring them in and relay them that message, they're like, oh, okay, so maybe this is actually right. Right. It gives you, your other stuff gives you like credibility, actually. Exactly. It's your channel. You do what you want with it. I mean, I think that's, that's a key thing for anybody who's thinking about putting something out there is, you know, decide that it's yours and you're going to do what you want with it. Mm -hmm. I do think it is worth thinking about what that means for you, because if you are mixing the personal and the professional, that means that you're going to get exposure for both and you may get feedback from people who don't like that. And, you know, yeah, I mean, my, my thing is, is that if you don't like my content, you can unsubscribe and it's not going to hurt my feelings. Welcome to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a pretty thick, I got a pretty thick skin or I develop a pretty thick skin. So it's just like, I understand, but that's how I feel. And this is what you guys need to hear because what you guys are hearing right now is not true at all. So. So did you have the YouTube channel when you were a grad student, or is this just since you've been a postdoc? Uh, this is, I had it since I was a grad student, but I wasn't really putting anything on there. It's become a little bit more active since I've become a postdoc. I feel like I also see you more on Twitter since you became a postdoc. Um, but maybe some of that has to do with more visibility for me of Black scientists on Twitter. I've started to follow more. Uh, there was this beautiful Black Botanist Week where I, I know you posted in that. Tell us what it's been like to be on Twitter sort of over the summer and into the fall this year as a Black scientist. Yeah, I didn't really have a Twitter until my postdoc. And then I was hearing from other people that, oh, I use Twitter for just science-related stuff. I only follow people that do science and nothing else. And so I kind of kept it with that is that Outside of maybe a handful of people that I know personally and I may follow, most of my following is on is with scientists. And as a black scientist uh, on Twitter, like these last few months, it's definitely been eye opening uh, what the power of Twitter can do uh, as far as connecting you to people that you probably wouldn't have ever met or known of. So I know before Twitter, like I had trouble finding black plant scientists, and now I have a ton of connections through that, that I was able to find through the power of Twitter. That's awesome. Yeah, we had a great conversation with Tanisha Williams about the pleasures of really seeing this community like form in real time over Twitter. And uh, um, I, I'm so glad for you guys that you, that you were able to do that, that you were able to like, use social media for this incredible experience that it sounds like is wasn't a flash in the pan either like it's a community that will be there and c connecting you guys forever which is super cool yeah i totally agree with that uh before that we there was people that i hadn't heard of or known of before that week and i was seeing all these black botanists and i was like oh he sound he or she sounds cool i should follow them and like vice versa and i just they follow me and I end up following them and we keep up with each other because we're, we, we're, we just developed that community. So Kevin, all, we just talked a little bit about the beauty of um, social media to sort of help you get through the pandemic, but we're really interested in your whole experience there. And I know in St. Louis, as you said, in March, the county, the city and the state were a bit on the slow on the uptake, but then eventually I think almost all uh, local elementary schools were closed. And I know you have a young daughter, is that right? 
Yep. Tell us how that, how you worked that out as a postdoc during the pandemic. Uh, it was definitely, definitely tricky. When my daughter's school, uh, when they closed um, for the year, and she was basically homeschooling from March till I think then of May. Trying to homeschool her was definitely a challenge because she's not really, because my daughter, she's currently in the third grade. And at that age, they're not really big on homeschooling. Uh, they want to go see their friends and interact with other people. And so at that age, it was kind of tough for me and my wife to keep her motivated on her schoolwork or uh, try to teach her subjects that she would get easily upset on. Um, so it was definitely, definitely a struggle. But so how did you, how did you manage that? You're, I mean, I was trying to be a fourth grade teacher and teach my class and run my lab. And it's no different for you. Although you weren't trying to teach what you were presumably, I guess you were home from, you were home from the lab, but I assume you had some stuff you were writing. Like, how did you work that out? Or did you just kind of catch as catch can every day? Yeah, I mean, I honestly just try to take days one day at a time. Some days I was I was able to get through with homeschool work with my daughter and then also do some work on my own and get a decent amount of work done. Other days it was just I was basically uh, helping my daughter for maybe half of the day and then on Zoom calls the other half and I just didn't get anything done. And I just had to live with that. And how did your how how did that go with your advisor? Uh Blake was actually really uh, flexible. Uh, he was really uh, open. He understood that I had a daughter in school and that some people in the lab, they also had kids that they had to tend to. He said, just do as much as you can. And if you can't get anything done that day, then that's, that's just the way it is. So it definitely helped a lot that Blake was really understanding uh, to that matter. How's that working? Like, how's that all working for you this fall? Yeah, so... Um, my daughter's school district, they went back uh, in person in August, which kind of surprised me at first, but uh, I've actually been somewhat uh, surprisingly pleased with how they've been handling it. Everybody wears masks. They're all doing their best with social distance. I can easily make, I can probably make an argument that the kids are doing a better job at it than some of the adults are in this world. Yeah, so she's back in school now, and I just drive to the lab, do what I have to get done, and then get out. And if I had to spend a whole day on Zoom calls or write, I'd just stay home just to make sure that the lab stays socially distanced and give other people a chance to get in and do their work. So, Kevin, you know, obviously, one of the things about Plant Path is that it is full of acronyms and is actually very hard to really get my head around all the terminology. Here I am in the most privileged position, and I have trouble understanding scientific communication. And one of the things that I think we, we don't do a good job of doing as a community is sort of expressing our science in ways that lots of people can understand. And, and, and I think that's probably all even more true when we're dealing with communities that have historically been excluded from our society and have their own vernacular dialects. And, and have you obviously have a, a unique advantage in communicating to <laughs> black audiences because you you look and sound and talk like them have you is this something you've been intentional about trying to put your science in your own words to try and bridge that gap or is that something that just is naturally happens yeah i mean it's something that i take uh, i take pretty personal to heart to try to craft and make sure i 
really communicate uh, the science to the public in a manner that they can easily understand it. Because I feel if, if they don't understand it, if the public's not understanding it, uh, we're not going to get anywhere with science. There's only a handful of scientists in the world, and just by forcing science, by if we keep progressing through science without uh, communicating stuff to the public, uh, there's still going to be all these conspiracy theories that get brought up, all these rumors that are completely bogus. And that's why I feel that if I can communicate what's happening to the public right now, and they can understand it and know what's going on without getting confused with all the jargon or the acronyms or the stuff that they really don't need to know unless they want to know more in detail. Uh, it's going to help us as a world or as a country to progress even further in science and accept more stuff in science easily. Yeah, I think that's really true. We start to use language as a shorthand for insider status. That's what I think. I think we like to use acronyms because, not really because we're trying to save on word count in a nature abstract that might be part of it, but I also think part of it is like, um, it's like a signal to other scientists like to say um, that you're an insider and you know this info so well, mm -hmm. you don't even need to have it all written out. And I think we do that in a lot of ways, not just with acronyms, but with you know, sort of phrases like plants are sessile or I'm just kidding. We do, that was for Ivan. We do this, we do this with like a lot of phrases. And I, I, I think I see that as something that scientists, we have bought into it so far that then crawling ourselves back out of that deep hole of insider language is makes it really hard for us to communicate with the public. And that's one of the things that I think is so admirable about what you're doing is that you don't feel compelled to signal like, I'm, a, I'm legit, I'm going to make sure I use all the acronyms possible. I'll just explain them to you. You're like, I don't even need that. I can just use normal language to explain it. And I think that's really a powerful I think it's powerful, but I think it's hard. I mean, do you find yourself fighting against that or no? Yeah, it, it's definitely hard. And that's why I try to continue to craft that, uh, my communications, because it's, it's just natural when you work in a field for so long that you want to shout out these acronyms because that's how you, how you know them. You don't know them as uh, this long word or this long phrase. You know them as an acronym and you assume that everybody else knows it. Yeah. And so it's been... Uh, it's definitely a challenge to break yourself out of that when you communicate communicated that to the public. Well, I mean, and you know, they're to some extent they're there for a reason. I mean, this you know, it's very hard to have a very common language word for something that a bacteria uses to evade the detection of the plant that's trying to look for the thing that the bacteria has put in there in the first place because the bacteria needs to steal something from it. <gasps> you know, and so you come up with an acronym that's like right. it's, a, it's an effector. <laughs> exactly yeah. but i think it's 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 a hard balance and and a lot of it is probably just practice right so you just have to keep doing it or you're you you won't you won't get there mm -hmm. yeah these these types of the ways that we use language extend so far so my dad is an english professor and i remember talking to him early on about how oh, i had to wrap up this story 
and blah, blah, blah as a graduate student. And he was like, wait, why are you saying story? That it's like fiction. That means, are you saying that what you're doing is fiction? <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 it's, it's science. <laughs> it just made me realize how much of the way we talk about our work in our inner circles uses words in different ways than they're used um, by like literally everybody else. And I feel like the plant path field does that a lot. <laughs> yeah. I think what kind of helped me kind of realize that is like, it's in grad school. Well, so in grad school, since I was uh, in a department that was at base, uh, Texas A&L, they're, they're good. They have good molecular biology, but they also have good, uh, like a, like more applied science. So like plant breeding, uh, those that work away from the bench and, Sometimes if you want to be successful, you need both of those. And you can't go from a lab bench with lab language to uh, somebody that's doing more applied work and they don't have that much molecular biology background. And that kind of gave me a real realization like, yo, I need to break this stuff down or we're not going to get anywhere. It's just that's the way it is. Well, Kevin, this was fantastic. Um, we really appreciate you joining us for this episode if people want to see all this great science communication that you're doing wh where, where can they find you uh they can find me on twitter uh just search uh you can search my name kevin cox jr or i think my twitter handle is like k underscore cox underscore bio guy my youtube channel which is named bio guy and they can also find me on twitch where i stream games every once in a while and like to hang out uh also by the name of bio guy and Liz, where can people find you on the YouTube and the Twitch and all those kinds of things? Well, normally I say you can find me on Twitter at, at eHaswell, but we also have a Haswell Lab YouTube channel that you can check out if you want with a couple of science and lab-related videos. Um, so it's just Haswell Lab YouTube channel. What about you, Ivan? And you, you, and you cannot find me on Twitch or YouTube, but you can find me on Twitter at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. You can find the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And we also have an email, which is taproot at plantae.org. And with that, Kevin, thank you so much. This was great. Ivan, Liz, thank you so much. This was an honor to be here to talk with you too. Oh, it was great to talk to you. I don't even know what Twitch is. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> <laughs> The Taproot is produced by the hosts in collaboration with the Plantae team of Katie Rogers and Mary Williams at the American Society of Plant Biologists. On this episode, we received editing help from Plantae fellow Shannon Barry. Joe Stormer provides our transcripts. Thanks for listening, and we will return with another episode next week. <laughs>